Greetings, everyone. It is now time for Marked Safe. Tales of your very favorite and most beloved disasters. On Mark Safe, we discuss events and details that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Please listen responsibly and stay safe. And now, here with your hosts, Brianne and Melanie, this is Mark Safe. It's Mardi Gras. It is. Tell us about it. Well, um, do you want like Mardi Gras tea? I feel like you like tea. Do you know what's do you, going on here? I feel like I like tea. Did you just show up to the podcast, Melody? <laughs> do you want Mardi Gras tea? Did you just show up to the podcast, uh, Melody? No, I know you want it. How okay, bad do you, you want it? It is. Oh, really bad. It's juicy. I'll say pretty please. Okay, so our mayor, Latoya Cantrell, we covered her here on the second episode. Um, with the hard rock and how that was handled. Um, they're actually trying to recall her right now. Um, she's not really doing the best. Um, a journalist, like, was kind of looking into uh, this apartment that's owned by the city. And uh, Miss Latoya Contrell has been shown on video hours and hours and hours worth of video going into this apartment with her bodyguard. Oh, my. Okay. And so it's an alleged affair. They're both married. Um, I think the bodyguard's wife, like, just filed for divorce. All of that, right? Oh, my God. Imagine being that journalist. Yes. Um, and, you know, she uh, she doesn't really care about bedside manner. She calls it how she <laughs> says it. And um, anyways, the bodyguard's last name is Vappy, right? Okay. Well, on the parade route, one of the floats, someone was holding a sign as they passed in front of the mayor that said, Vappy Mardi Gras. <laughs> <laughs> this did not go over well. And uh, now there's video footage of our mayor in New Orleans flipping off the float. Oh, my God. What's even wrong with that? I don't know. I think it's fine. She needs to calm down. She does need to calm down. Um, she's, <laughs> I hate to say that. but <laughs> She uh, normally um, kicks off the parade here, um, you know, on horseback. She she was not. She was a no-show today. So, oh. I don't know. Did the horse show up? Yeah. The, the horses were there. With the officers on them. No mare, though. I don't know. It just gets juicier and juicier. We don't have anything that exciting here. We just gave the world Mike Pence. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> Yikes. Our bad. Oh, I'm really excited about today's episode. Can we jump into the bracket? Absolutely. I'm excited about any episode you're excited about. This was kind of one of those ones that were leftovers. I don't know if this is really a pair it's not. Could be. Okay. Uh, today, it's garlic versus puppy paws. Puppy paws. Puppy fucking paws. I mean, I like to eat garlic, but if we're just talking specifically about smells, puppy paws all day, every day. I am a recovering huffer when it comes to puppy paws. <laughs> oh, my God. 
I love yeah, puppy paws easy. too. But I don't know. Yeah. I think I would go with garlic on this one personally for me. No. But you I'm more of a vampire than you. You are the bracket queen. So puppy paws it is. Puppy paws have every chance of going all the way. So I went camping, fake camping. <laughs> That's not fake. <laughs> Sissy called it glamping. Uh, <sighs> we pitched our tent in our backyard to see how Squonk would handle it because I really want to do some camping this summer. Hey, that's smart. That's a great test run. Yeah. Oh, they Damn. did so good. We grilled. Uh, we had some popsicles, s'mores. Baby slept through the night. He slept better in the tent than he did in his <laughs> crib. I just. It's because he's a cryptid. He's supposed to be in the forest. Oh. He's a natural. He's a natural. I think I'm just going to leave him out there. He's a squonk. We knew it. He's a squonk. <laughs> so I was thinking I've had this um, episode on my list forever. And why not do camping stories? Absolutely. I even made a call out um, to ask any of the horrible ghouls if they had any camping stories. Um, so I'm going to include those at the end. I am stoked. All right. So this is going to be a two-parter. Um, it wound up being a bigger deep dive than I thought it was going to be. Um, but it's going to be good. So here we go. Michael and Lindy Chamberlain wanted another baby. They had two sons already. And so this time they had hoped for a girl. The couple were Seventh-day Adventists. Michael was a pastor. And so when Lindy did give birth to a baby girl on June 11, 1980, they had the perfect name for her, Azaria, which in Hebrew meant blessed of God. I think I know what this is. <laughs> a couple months after Azaria was born, Michael and Lindy decided to go on a family vacation. Experienced campers, the couple loaded up their yellow Tirana hatchback with camping gear, and the family of five set off from their home in Mount Isa, Australia. On August 14th, they stopped for the night at Devil's Marbles, an Aboriginal sacred site and popular tourist attraction. They then spent some time near Alice Springs before driving six hours to Ayers Rock. So we're going to do a little sidebar real quick. Ayers Rock is a massive sandstone monolith, and in 1993, Ayers Rock adopted a dual name using its traditional Aboriginal name, Uluru, alongside its English name. Since this story took place before the, the dual name change, I will be referring to it as Ayers Rock just to preserve the source materials that I used in quotes okay. and stuff like that. But yeah. Uluru is the popular name. Um, I think it's so cool to take things back to the original indigenous names. I wish yeah. more, wish we did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not, not entirely on brand for us. No, we can't even country, change football names without fucking no. riding in the streets. A whole it's, bunch of drama and, and crying adults. Yep. <sighs> so the next morning on August 17th, Michael headed out to take some photographs while Lindy stayed behind with the kiddos. Seven-year-old Aiden, four-year-old Reagan, and nine-week-old baby Azaria. Man, that's little. Mm -hmm. Michael rejoined them for breakfast, and afterwards, they all explored the rock together. They drove around the base, and then about 11.30, Michael decided to make the climb up the rock. Climbing Uluru is banned now, um, but back then, it was marketed that way to bring tourists into the national park. You know, it is what it is. 
After the climb, the family drove to Maggie Spring, a natural water hole, before returning to their campsite. Well, that was a fucking mess. <laughs> <laughs> We've only had that kind of technical malfunction, I think, like maybe three times mid-episode. Yeah, we're we're in the middle of recording, and my whole computer just took a shit. Yeah. So hopefully this can be stitched together. We're going to be um, testing my skills as the audio gal today. Um, so <laughs> if there was any odd sound in your audio in the last minute or so, sorry, I'm doing my best. Hopefully you won't even notice it. Let's continue. <laughs> All right. So back at the site, Lindy bathed the children while Michael went to shoot some more sunset pics. So our girl, Lindy, she is working. It's that saying, moms don't go on vacation. They just take care of their kids in a different city. Absolutely. Anyway, their four-year-old son, Reagan, was exhausted from the day because I mean they were just doing everything. And four-year-olds... They're full of energy most of the time, but until they're, when they're not. done, they're fucking <laughs> yep. done. Yeah. So he, Reagan is tired. And so Lindy takes him to the tent to rest while Michael starts up the barbecue. Back outside, Lindy and Michael met a Tasmanian couple. As they chatted it up, something really bizarre happened. They saw a dingo. Lindy said, it was very mangy dingo. It was very dirty and dusty. My son Aiden had a torch and shone it on this little mouse. And the man told Aiden to bring the torch over. And before he got there, the dingo pounced and grabbed the mouse by the feet and made off into the night. Was very surprised. We were a little upset. Sounds a little upsetting to watch. Yeah. Especially like if you've got kids around, yeah. you have like this dingo. Yeah. They're not normally like in these campsites no. you know okay. they're they're around but for the most part it's believed that you know they kind of stay yeah. away they do their own thing the group was alarmed that a dingo would come so close to the camping area um but it actually despite what they thought it wasn't all that unusual dingoes had actually showed up at the same site just the night before oh wow Judith Ellen West was staying at a campsite next to Michael and Lindy. Just before sundown on Saturday, a dingo grabbed the arm of her 12-year-old daughter, Catherine. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah. Judith said, my daughter was outside writing in her diary, and the dingo came and took her elbow in its mouth. And Catherine called out to me. I came out and pulled her elbow away, and I shooed the dingo. That dingo was trying to read her damn diary. Nosy fucking How dingo. Dare he. <laughs> <laughs> Do little girls write in diaries anymore? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I never did that because my parents were too nosy. Oh, I did. And it turned out my parent was nosy and that that was a world of shit. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> we're cool now. <laughs> Judith also witnessed a dingo near a caravan pulling clothes one by one off a low-strung clothesline and just dropping them on the ground. Again, Judith shooed it away. I mean, that that's creepy, like, just sitting there just pulling the, I don't yeah, know. No, it just gave me a real weird mental picture. Yeah, no, me too. What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> Is that your question well, for the dingo? <laughs> yes! <laughs> I'm just picturing you holding on a microphone to a dingo going, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> What are you doing and what Tell was in Catherine's diary? <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
While Michael and Lindy barbecued, Murray Habby and his family were at their campsite 20 to 30 meters away when a dingo also approached their van. Murray also thought it was unusual for the dingo to come so close, so much so that he whipped out his camera and took a couple photos of the dingo before tossing it a bone and watching it run off into the night. Back at the Chamberlain's campsite, Lindy put a sleepy baby Azaria in her cot in the back of the tent where their son Regan was still sleeping. She left the tent unzipped for whenever their oldest Aiden would make his way to bed. But Aiden wasn't ready to sleep. He was hungry. (laughs) So she returned with a can opener to make him some baked beans when suddenly Michael heard a cry. He said that it sounded like, quote, someone being squeezed almost out of breath. It sounded to me like an important cry. Mothers have instincts and fathers do too. And it seemed to me there was a note of urgency. Important cry. That's an interesting way to put it. Mm -hmm. Lindy dropped the can opener and rushed to the tent to check on the children. As she approached, she saw a mustard colored dingo come out of their tent. It had something in its mouth. Oh no. And it was shaking its head. She screamed for the dingo to get out of the tent. When Lindy made her way into the, the tent, Blankets were scattered everywhere, and the cot where baby Azaria slept was empty. Frantically, she felt through the blankets, but nothing was there. Only Regan remained there, still asleep. Lindy raced out of the tent and screamed, My God, the dingo's got my baby. I know that there is some kind of, did they do something bad that ends up in this? Yes. I I don't remember the outcome, though, at all. So I don't know how to feel right now. Michael grabbed a flashlight and charged into the bush, but the scrub concealed everything. Michael raced to find some help, and when he happened upon some campers playing some Christian music, he asked for them to grab their flashlights and to help search for Azaria, or to just pray. Aiden said to Lindy, Mommy, don't let the dingo eat our baby. We have got to find her. Oh, no. To which he replied that they would try to find her and Jesus would look after her. With over 200 people now searching through the night, the Chamberlain family was escorted to a local motel to wait. But in their hearts, they knew Azaria was dead. And it seemed for, at the moment, that officials agreed. A spokesman for the police in Alice Springs said, There are dingo layers everywhere. If the baby has been taken into the cave, the possibility of recovery is almost nil. The following morning, mounds of press just made their way to the motel, and Michael and Lindy agreed to be interviewed. For Michael, he felt that he needed to warn people about the dangers of these dingoes. Holding his son, a very composed Michael, spoke into the camera saying, When we saw the spots of blood in the tent, as we looked, we realized it must have been a very quick event. And this morning, when we saw the blanket, the sharp, ripped, jagged marks, in that very thickly woven blanket, we knew that was a powerful beast with sharp teeth. Mm. People watching the interview were like puzzled. It was, they were, Michael and Lindy were so calm. Like it would be, you know, just having a casual conversation. You know, there was just Can you even to the point. It was to the point, you know. Yeah. They, people immediately were like, this is bizarre. They're too calm. This is not how you grieve people, which 
everybody grieves in a different way. But collectively, the public was like, this is fucking weird. And the police took notice, too. They thought it was odd behavior. But remember, the Chamberlains, they were Seventh-day Adventists. So the way that they were grieving was normal for them. Um, Quote, Adventists have a strong and unwavering faith in the goodness of God. Michael and Lindy's belief in God and on what happens when someone dies gave them the calm and ability to rest and rely on God. But their, quote, imported religion was fairly new to Australia during this time. And because of that, rumors and gossip would soon swirl the seven-day Adventist church, basically calling it a cult. And remember, we're in the 80s, like, satanic panics around here. Like, oh, yeah, it's all. We'll get more into that later. All that to say, suspicions into the Chamberlain story were immediate. Police needed to find Azaria and the dingo. So police started shooting and killing dingoes around Alice Springs, sending their bodies in for analysis. Media picked up on this and started reporting that upwards to 40 to 50 dingoes were killed. Quote, the stories were exaggerated. In fact, they shot six or seven dingoes, including old dingaling. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. There was no warning. <laughs> there was no warning, Melanie. <laughs> that old tingling. I'm sorry. That old tingling. Old tingling. Okay. I was unprepared. So, um, old tingling. <laughs> I guess he was a fixture at Ayers Rock. Um, he was an absolute nuisance, but he was beloved by locals. If he was so beloved, like, why would they name him Old Dingley? <laughs> I mean, it's clever. I mean, I love you, and that's what I call you, so I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. On August 24th, Azaria's jumpsuit, disposable diaper, onesie, and booties were found by a couple of tourists. Wallace Victor Goodwin found her clothing in a crevice in the rocks about 600 meters from where the Chamberlain's tent was located. He rushed to alert the authorities. Senior Constable Francis John Morris returned with Wallace to the site where the clothes were found. When Francis saw the clothing, he returned to his vehicle and radioed in to the Alice Springs Police Headquarters. He was told to check if a baby was in the clothing and then to arrange for photographs. Returning, he undid the snaps, reached into the leg area, and pulled out a booty. When no remains were found, he put the clothes back the way he felt was in the same position as he found them. He didn't have a camera on him because his had been sent in for repairs, so he arranged for a professional photographer to come take them instead. Afterwards, the clothes were bagged and sent to Adelaide for an examination. 20 meters from where the clothes were found, a dingo lair, and fresh dingo tracks. But still, no remains were found. A young policewoman, Myra Fogarty, was assigned the task of completing the initial forensic work on the clothing. You ready to get pissed? I'm I'm always pissed, but sure. You can Uh, enhance it if you'd like. This mis this is mishandled. This is this is bananas. So Myra had only been working in forensics for three months. And she had to take on this high-profile case with absolutely 
no supervision, and without proper instructions. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Admittedly, Myra said she actually used the news coverage of the case to help fill out her report. Oh, my God. The same news coverage that is, like, already casting suspicions on this story. So here's a summary of how Myra handled the evidence. Myra had taken the clothing out of the box and just shaken it on a bench. Everything which fell off, including that which fell on the floor, was swept away and discarded, along with any material in the box itself. She then laid the clothes on the bench and vacuumed them. Vacuumed them? She vacuumed them. The contents of the vacuum cleaner were then placed in containers and placed in a cupboard. She had not been told what type of hair she should be looking for. Is that how this is supposed to be done? Nope. Okay. (laughs) They they put this this rookie forensic. This doesn't seem right, but maybe I don't know what I'm doing. There should be more than one person in there. I don't know. I don't know. So she had not been told what type of hairs that she should be looking for. Obviously, she should be looking for a dingo hair. Um, So she took hair from her own head to use as comparison okay crafty sure the blankets and other material taken from the tent had been treated in much of the same manner the soil from around the tent was supposed to be tested for saliva but it was in fact only tested for blood the area of the tent with the blood spatter found by Inspector Gilroy and Sergeant Lincoln was not tested at all. In fact, the tent had been placed in the back of the cupboard, too. Oh, my God. This is infuriating. Yeah. So basically, in the end, there was no evidence that a dingo took baby Azaria. None. The police were convinced that the Chamberlains had something to do with this. Northern Territory Police asked television station QTQ9 for a copy of the parents' interview on the show Today Tonight. Um, they, they wanted to get a second look on how they were acting. Meanwhile, Michael and Lindy tried to have a memorial erected for Zarya Ayers Rock and had sent in an application with the federal government. But as their story gained national skepticism, their grieving, whatever that had may have been for them, was overshadowed by wild claims. That's horrible. Can you even begin to imagine? It's disgusting. Like, I can barely handle a bad review on my podcast on a Tuesday when the worst thing that happened to me is fucking nothing. Right. And because I'm a big, sensitive baby, and here you are grieving the worst thing that can probably happen to a person. Mm-hmm. And getting drunk, and then like everybody's this. thinking that you're yeah. responsible for it. Lindy said, "The latest rumor going around is that my husband has been charged with the baby's murder, and that my baby was a sacrifice for our religion. People say this memorial we want to put up for Azaria Ayers Rock is part of this sacrifice thing." Lindy would even overhear shoppers gossiping when she went to the grocery store. She said they're linking the case with the Jonestown massacre and with the Spear Creek murders at Mount Isa 12 months ago. I think three people were killed then. We were not even in Mount Isa then. So these rumors are just like insane, 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 because they just 
I feel like it would have been both better and worse. Because what year was this? 1980. Yeah, I feel like this would have been better and worse if we had, like, the modern internet. <laughs> because on one right. hand, I mean, certain things that are just nonsense could have probably been discredited a little bit more. But on the other hand, on the other hand. <laughs> comment sections. Yep, comment sections. We'd be on some other bullshit. It would just be different bullshit. Right. The police continued their investigation. Francis, the constable who was on the scene um, to take pictures of Azaria's clothing uh, when they were found, he was given a similar jumpsuit to what she was wearing by a forensic scientist to basically recreate the alleged dingo attack. He filled it with towels and dragged it at, quote, dog height in several areas around where the clothes were located. Not from the tent to the location of the clothes. No. He was just ordered to drag it around at a couple little locations. When asked later if he deliberately went through certain bushes like a dingo would have, he replied, I try to be a dog, but obviously going between bushes. I try to be as realistic as possible. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> On December 15th, an inquest began. At the Alice Springs Coroner's Court, Mr. Ashley McNay, who assisted the coroner, said that the evidence pointed to the fact that the child had been removed from the clothing found at Ayers Rock by a person rather than a dingo. A forensic botanist also concluded that the clothing was not carried by a dog or a dingo because the threads in the clothing would have been pulled as it was caught through vegetation. There was a lack of evidence that the clothing had gone through vegetation lying between the campsite and the rock. A forensic dentist also concluded that none of the tears on the jumpsuit or the onesie had been caused by a dog or a dingo. And so on the basis of the material that McNay presented, coroner Dennis Barrett ruled it was within his jurisdiction to conduct an inquiry into Zaria's death. Testifying. Lindy answered McNay's questions, quote, deliberately in a voice that could hardly be heard by many in a crowded public gallery. She wept several times in the first half until they took their lunch break. After they returned, Lindy, quote, tended to answer questions more aggressively. She also got super pissed when McNay pronounced Azaria's name wrong, quickly correcting him. Hmm. On day two of the inquest, questioning of Azaria's name was on the forefront. So we got all these crazy rumors going around. Yeah. At this time, the press had reported that the true meaning of the name Azaria was sacrifice in the wilderness. Oh, for God's sake. This is what we're spending time on? Yep. This is what we're doing? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just deep diving everything, and they're wrong they're doing it wrong sometimes yeah the coroner asked lindy if she was aware of the other meaning she said not till afterwards and it was also pointed out that a name in one of the books three thousand unusual names that the name directly under azaria was azale and i'm probably saying that wrong but it's an old hebrew name for the devil and bearer of sins i think someone looked up the wrong name and got the wrong meaning yeah, so it's the wrong thing. They're just trying to publish something salacious. Of course. During the inquest, they would eventually bring in a Hebrew expert to testify that Azaria did in fact mean 
with the help of God. And at a similar sounding name, Azala meant sacrificed in the wilderness. So they didn't even have the right fucking name. The fact that this is even the rabbit hole they're down is infuriating. (laughs) They also questioned Michael's eagerness to talk to the press after the disappearance of their daughter. Michael had even taken photographs of the campsite at the request of another news outlet. Michael went on a tour bus. He purchased some black and white film because he knew from experience, um, with his experience from newspapers, um, that they preferred black and white prints. Um, he knew this because he actually had uh, his own column in a couple newspapers. So he went back to the campsite and he photographed the tent looking towards Ayers Rock. McNay asked Michael, who had referred earlier to the tent as a morgue, which he had never wanted to sleep in again, why he would want to take pictures of that. Michael replied that he felt that taking pictures of a tent and sleeping in it were quite different. Okay. (laughs) Fucking duh. Yeah. By the third day of the inquest, threatening phone calls towards Michael and Lindy were made to the coroner's court. The public had already made their mind up. They had killed their baby. So extra security was ordered and the inquest continued. Derek Roth, senior ranger at Ayers Rock, testified that he and Aboriginal trackers discovered a drag mark on the sand hill within the first few hours of the search. But with the mass of volunteers and search parties, they obscured the track and drag marks. You guys, too many people. There's... This is so mishandled, just top to bottom. top to bottom. Everything that they could fuck up, they did. Absolutely. He said the drag mark, quote, appeared to me eight inches or nine inches wide, slightly wavy, and there were big treads. I have been told the difference between dog and dingo prints by our aboriginal trackers, and I believe they were dingo treads. So there's evidence, but it's gone. It's, It's just gone. Yeah. On day four, more dingo evidence. Would a dingo, could a dingo really take a baby? Oh, I bet everybody's, everybody's like, no, dingoes. How big is they a don't dingo? Like, huh? How big is a dingo, really? I mean, imagine like a medium sized dog. Okay, like a beagle, maybe? Let's look it up. <laughs> this is the kind of rabbit hole that we need to be going down. Yes. All right, so dingoes. Dingoes are medium-sized dogs, uh, three and a half to four feet. Um, they're naturally lean like a Wait, greyhound. three and a half to four feet like at the shoulder or like standing up on its feet like a person? Long, from head to tail. Oh, okay, okay. Because I'm like, hold on, Adelaide's about to be four feet tall. There's no way this dingo's as tall as my eight-year-old. Okay. <laughs> um. Yeah, standing between 19 and 25 inches at the shoulder. They weigh about be- anywhere between 30 and 50 pounds. So, there you go. That's pretty big. I think a dingo, personally, could eat a baby. And I don't know whether a dingo did or did not eat this particular baby, but I'm my my hot take here is going to be that, yes, I think a dingo could carry a baby away. Yeah, uh, and you're right. So, in June the same year, just a couple months before Azaria disappeared, a three-year-old child was dragged by its neck from a car at Ayers Rock. She was left in the car with the door open while her parents set up their tent. The child was treated and the dingo thought responsible for the attack was shot by the ranger. Um, She, she, the, I don't know if it was a she, but the, the kid was okay. 
Um, Senior Ranger Ian Kaywood said it had been born by Ayers Rock and had been in mischief all its life. He would break into motel rooms, tearing up lounge suites and stealing luggage. I waited at my house because he used to do the rounds looking for handouts and I shot him. Well, okay. So there's evidence and just a couple months, same spot. A three-year-old's being dragged, but still it's like, what more evidence do you want? Like yeah. this literally happened to someone else, a three-year-old. Mm. And we're and talking we're, about a nine-week baby. Nine week, yeah. I mean, it clearly could happen. Ugh, it, it, this is horrible. Yeah. It didn't matter because at this point, Lindy was the most hated woman in Australia. And uh, people were like, if they saw her, they were screaming at her that she was a baby killer. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? No. No. I hope. Okay. I hope they feel terrible assuming that, you know, she turns out to have not been involved. Yeah. I hope they do, too. Mm. The inquest took a break at the end of December. The rumors and the gossip, though, they did not stop. When the inquest resumed in February of 1981, more testimonies just enforced the public's opinion that Lindy and Michael were guilty. Scientific advisor to the South Australian police, Rex Harold Kuchel's report stated, quote, The presence of a considerable quantity of red sand in the jumpsuit indicates a distinct possibility of it being buried and then dug up before being placed where it was found. So he's alleging that somebody has taken her clothes, buried it, dug it, and then tamper, placed it somewhere else. And then it came to the tears in Azaria's jumpsuit. Sergeant First Class Frank Cox. No, why did I say, why did I say it like that, Brianne? <laughs> ah, I'm leaving that in. <laughs> <laughs> There's like so much infliction in that Cox. <laughs> Oh, if you think that's getting cut. Oh, friend, you don't even know me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Frank. Uh, Frank Cox. What a fucking name, too. What a name. (laughs) What a name. Frank Cox. Or Frank. Sorry, Frank. Um, Well, Frank (laughs) testified that the cuts had been made on the jumpsuit after um, blood on the clothing had dried, probably with scissors. So Frank's like, "These, these were cut. He said the fibers had been cut by a sharp instrument. They had not been torn. It was a bladed instrument. So, again, no dingo hair or saliva were found on the clothes because, you know, Myra. Mm. On February 20th, the inquest ended and the coroner, Dennis Barrett, found that the dingo had, in fact, taken Azaria. Um, he, he did slam the police and all the work. Um, he was very upset with the rumor mill. Um, but yes, he, he found that the dingo took the baby, but then there was a bombshell. He also found that there was human intervention. Quote, the body of Azaria was taken from the possession of the dingo and disposed of by an unknown method by a person or persons name unknown. What? Yeah. What the hell? Isn't that fucking wild? Yes. Ultimately, Lindy and Michael were cleared, but not for long. 
And that is where we will end it today. We will be back for part two. Oh my gosh. Next week. You're leaving me on tenterhooks, Melanie. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just like there's so much more to this. There's no way I could have crammed this into one episode. Oh my goodness. Okay. I want so, more. like I said earlier, I did want to get some listener stories from the Horrible Ghouls. Um, I think it's going to be a good palate cleanser. I got quite a few. So I'm going to read one today. It's a little bit on the longer side. And then I'll include the rest next week. And if we have too many, we'll just drop another disaster potluck just to go with everything. Because there's some really good ones. Okay. So this one is from Jen Durrell. Also, thank you, everyone that sent them in. I've loved reading them. Here we go. From Jen. Hey, Melanie and Brienne, hope this finds you well. I saw Melanie's call out for a Mark Safe camping story, and oh boy, do I have one for this round. When I was about six in the early 90s, my family went out camping. Ma, my sister, and myself. For clarity, I live in the southern Alberta, close to the Rocky Mountains, so going out camping in the mountains, bush, isn't too much out of the norm. This particular trip, we went along with my aunt and uncle, plus my two cousins, ages 10 and 6, to a place honestly called Dead Man's Flats within the, oh, thanks for putting the pronunciation, can, still not going to get it right, Kananaskis, <laughs> Kananaskis area of Alberta, Kananaskis. She knows me. She knows I'm just going to misspell it. <laughs> mispronounce it not both both love you <laughs> i'm a dingling an old dingling you are an old dingling we got to our site in a mostly busy but very wooded campground in early afternoon and started setting up aunt and uncle were setting up their camper my ma with our tent even though this is a hundred percent bear country us kids were kicked out of the campsite and sent off to play to get us out of our parents hair for a while early 90s pairing am i right you are right. You are. So off we trek into the woods to explore the area and just do what kids do. We were probably gone two hours when my sister 11 and my cousin 10 stumbled on an open cardboard box in the tree line, not far from our campsite, with an eye shot for our exact site. They called myself, six, and my cousin, six, over to see what they had found. It was full of weird looking stuff like pipes, wires, just mechanical looking junk. We didn't think much of it, but decided to mention it to our parents because it was weird to find this stuff out in the woods. My mom, my aunt and my uncle, Ma's brother, asked us to take them to whatever it was we found. And when they took one look at it, they immediately panicked. We were ordered back to the campsite and into my uncle's trailer with instructions to stay down. And under no circumstances were we allowed to look out the windows. My uncle then jumped into his truck and hauled us away from our site. We thought we were in huge trouble because we found something we shouldn't have, and we were worried we'd have to pack up and go home. (laughs) A devastating prospect for four kids who had been dreaming of Campfire Marshmallow for weeks. It was starting to get dark out, and when we all peeked out the window, we saw the park rangers all over our campsite cordoning off our area because we were in a national park. Then the RCMP showed up and started evacuating people camping near us. 
we all thought, oh, man, we really did it this time. We're all going to be arrested. We're going to jail. <laughs> oh, my God. They're just ready. I fucking love kids, like, in their imaginations. <laughs> right. Like, that's your immediate thought. Is you're, you're going to the slammer. That's it. The jig is up. We could hear helicopters <laughs> flying overhead, and all the flashing lights from the rangers' trucks and the RCMP cars were clearly visible in the dark of the trailer. Then the bomb squad out of Edmonton showed up. Turns out that someone had placed a full box of homemade explosives, including pipe bombs, in the tree line near our campsite. And us inquisitive kids had inadvertently stumbled across a cache of bombs. Oh, no. Oh, this story could have gone so much worse. It could have been so fucking bad. Oh, no. We never did get evacuated ourselves, but we were able to sneakily watch the bomb squad's robots go into the trees and get the box, and the squad detonate the explosives away from our sight. That's really fucking cool. The police and the park rangers thanked us kids for finding the stuff and let us sit in their cars for a few minutes, but the real kicker to this adventure, we didn't even get to stay up late and roast marshmallows. Our parents well, that's thought some bullshit. it is some bullshit. Our parents thought that was enough excitement for our kids and for the kids and sent us to bed instead. Aww. We woke up next morning to bear tracks all through our campsite and the neighbors gossiping about what had taken place the night before. Mark safe from homemade explosives and marshmallow sugar high, but not Mark safe from super stressed out parents, spooky stories, and an early bedtime wildest camping trip i've ever had thanks so much for all the hard work you both do for the community you've built and for giving us a sounding board for our own mark safe stories sending love from canada thanks jen thank you we're glad you're still around yes we are really glad that you're writing that story and we're not covering that story (laughs) Uh, can you imagine just being little and finding a box of explosives no. Why were they there? Who did they belong to? That's what I want to know. Somebody extremely irresponsible. <laughs> a very bad person. I imagine. Well, are you ready for some disaster relief? I am. Okay. You should go first on this one. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I'm just going to go Mardi Gras. We went to a parade the other day. Um, it was a lot of fun. We took our big old trash bag we got lots of haul um everyone got hit the head a couple times but no permanent injuries we're all good it was nice the weather was perfect (laughs) it was glorious sounds wonderful it was wonderful the only thing is like bringing that stuff home you gotta lysol it and then you gotta find places for it because they get stuffies it's not just beads i mean it's like those huge like construction garbage bags. Oh like, my God. Full of stuff. Cause you get cups and all this stuff. They're trying to, you know, throw some of the throws are trying to do more sustainable so it doesn't like Yeah. Get into our drainage and stuff like that. But it's sad. It's it's the end of another Mardi Gras season. I gotta take my Christmas tree down now. I don't want to take my Christmas tree down. Just make it an Easter tree. I don't have the energy for that either. <laughs> So what's yours? Um, okay. I am <laughs> mine's a little weird. It's I'm gonna do a particular conversation that I had with my daughter that feels um very relevant to this podcast. 
So she is with her dad this week and she called me last night and she started telling me this long story about this thing that she started called, I believe she called it the National Explorers League or something like that. Um, she's telling me all about this. I, I, I'm a little, you, you know how eight year olds are when they're telling yeah. a big story. It's, it's sometimes like, she glaze over. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I'm, I'm more or less following along, but I didn't really catch if this was something she started or something she joined. Um, well, then she starts talking about the rules to be in the National Explorers Club or League or whatever it was. And it, it becomes clear that this is an organization of her own invention. <laughs> she says there are five rules. And the more she talks, she she is a bossy child. I feel like we went through a thing where we weren't supposed to say bossy um, about girls. Just trust me when I say that I'm saying it with admiration and terror. She's like cult leader junior. Okay, hold on. We're getting there. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> so... She says there's just there's just five rules to being in her organization. And I'm like, what are they? Because <laughs> the more she talks about this, the more I'm worried that she's going to make all her friends wear matching outfits. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, honey, what are the rules? And she starts telling me, the first rule is that you can't use any excuses to break the rules. Oh. <laughs> the second oh. rule... Is that you can't backtalk the boss, which is her and only her. <laughs> By the way, there are real people in this club. <laughs> this is a real thing. <laughs> Number three. <laughs> this this is the clincher. This is the cult clincher here. <laughs> Number three. You can't do any things designed just to get you kicked out. <laughs> I said, honey, oh. why do you feel like people are going to want out that bad? <laughs> Once you're in, you're in for yeah, life. You, you can't sabotage yourself just to leave. As soon as she said that, I'm like, wait, wait, why are they going to want to, though? <laughs> and she's like, well, I don't know. But if anything changes and they don't want to be in it, no. Um, rule number four, in a change of tone here, confident yourself, which I think means be confident in yourself. Oh. And, Sorry, uh, squonk just busted in. <laughs> I squonk. <laughs> and uh, number five, don't leave a station just because it's not your turn. Be patient. Well, then she tells me there's a ceremony to get in. <laughs> a ceremony? Not a ceremony. <laughs> if you get accepted, there is a ceremony for your induction into this. And I'm like, oh, oh my you God. Have to be, you have to be accepted, too. Uh-huh. You have to be accepted. Then you have to follow those five rules, number numbers one through three concerning how desperately you're going to want to want leave basically so there's a ceremony once you get accepted the club has its own language what's it called i don't know i don't speak it she calls the people students and she assigns them jobs this is a fucking cult <laughs> your daughter started a cult before you did I How's that make you feel? <laughs> um, She's like, I'm not waiting for my mom to pass down this legacy. I'm no, just going to do it myself. She's starting the legacy. <laughs> um, I am proud and horrified in equal measures. I, I am 
I'm shocked and impressed and disturbed that she seems to have intuited the playbook for cults so naturally. Um, if she starts talking about sleep deprivation or something, I think we need to just let her go with it because she's yeah. clearly got a knack for this. Um, I'm a little disturbed also that my daughter intuitively figured out the necessary dynamics of a cult. And implemented them with an iron fist, it sounds like. Um, and this is how <clears throat> I found myself in a parking lot on the phone having a conversation with my eight-year-old daughter about how she could incentivize people to want to stay in her cult. <laughs> because I told her, if if you're making a cult where the only thing is just people getting bossed around and there's nothing in it for them, she says, well, they get to explore nature. I said, honey, they could do that themselves with a lot fewer rules. You know, you're going right. to make this attractive to them somehow if you're going to keep, uh, I don't know, disciples, whatever we're calling them, um, that that may be necessary. So now she wants to make beaded bracelets to entice people that they can get better ones as they rank up within the league. That's kind of adorable. It, is it? <laughs> I mean, as far if we're talking cults, like I that's mean, probably the cutest. For now. <laughs> Like they get better as you rank up? I, I think that somehow the quality of your jewelry improves. So now she wants me to, I guess I'm in her cult now, now that I think about it. Oh, you're going to have to fund the beads. I always said that I wouldn't be in somebody else's cult and then I wouldn't even co-run a cult with anybody. But she's asked me if she brings her own beads when she comes back, if I will help her make the jewelry. And I just realized I am now employed in my daughter's cult. Now that I'm saying this out loud. See, you'd never know you're in a cult till it's too late. Honest to God, she's good. <laughs> I I have to be impressed. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. Wow. Okay. Well, well let me know how it goes. If yeah. I should join her or not. I mean, <laughs> I'll let you know how the jewelry is, because I'm not going to lie, there don't seem to be a lot of other perks yet. But now that I've put that bug in her ear, I think she is workshopping ways to make her cult more and more attractive, which is frankly terrifying. <laughs> if you know her at all, you know this. Um, so, pray for me. I will. Well, part two next week. Um, yeah. Until then. Sweet dreams or no dreams. Sweet dreams or no dreams. Hey, Horrible Ghouls. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you would like to share your personal MarkSafe moment, you can send it to us at MarkSafePodcast at gmail.com. Please give our podcast a rate, review, and subscribe, and tell your buddies about us, too. That goes a long way. If you want to further elevate your support, check out our MarkSafe Patreon page, where we have shoutouts, goodies, and some bonus content in the works. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again, and as always, stay safe.